church. Today's scripture reading will be from Genesis 20. If you're using the Blue Pew Bible, it is on page 14. I invite you all to stand with me as we read from God's Word. Again, we're in Genesis 20, starting in verse 1. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Nagab and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said, to his to, said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not say himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us, and how have I sinned against you, that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me, do me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, let's pray again. Gracious Father, we thank you for your holy word as it was just read. And now we're asking for help from the Holy Spirit to come, accompany the preaching of this very word, that your people might be built up in the truth, and that your gospel, your grace may be proclaimed clearly and powerfully. We pray all this for your glory, our good, all in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, church, I'm sure most of you know that we have been in the book of Genesis lately, studying the life of Abraham. And he's such an important figure to study because he is revered, not just in biblical history. You have to understand, he's revered in world history. He's regarded as Father Abraham by adherents of three major world religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And the New Testament portrays him as an exemplary man of faith. That's what, how he is presented to us, as the man of faith. And the Apostle Paul was comfortable enough to speak of saving faith in terms of sharing in the faith of Abraham. That is, if you want to be a Christian, you need to share Abraham's faith. That's how important he is. That's how revered he is. Which, of course, makes his portrayal in Genesis all the more interesting as we study it. Because Abraham doesn't show up in Scripture as a finished product. He doesn't arrive on the scene as this matured man of faith. Rather, what we've seen so far, starting in chapter 12, is we see him following the Lord in fits and starts. Yes, there were times where he did exercise great faith in God. He left his father's house to to venture into a foreign land that he's never visited before. He trusted God's promises to to grant him offspring as numerous as the stars in the heavens. He obeyed God and he received the mark of circumcision for himself and for all the, 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 the males in his household. Those, my friends, were all very commendable steps of faith. Those are high points in his story. But interspersed among all of those highlights are moments of weakness and moral failures. You see, when they sojourned to Egypt back in Genesis 12, Abraham put his wife Sarah in harm's way, all in a ruse designed to save his own skin. He pretended that she was merely his sister, which resulted in her being taken into Pharaoh's harem of concubines, and likely she was forced into adultery. That episode in Abraham's story was such a shameful moment of of moral cowardice. And then later on, We saw in Genesis 16 when his barren wife suggested that he take uh, his um, female servant, Hagar, and to lay with her in order to try and procure for themselves an heir. Abraham had no objection to engaging in his own form of adultery. He compromised his marriage bed in an act of sinful self-reliance, trying to fulfill God's promises to him by his own effort no longer trusting that God was going to do it. So that's how his story has been portrayed for us to this point, with highs and lows. Now, if you've noticed, though, since we've been in Genesis 17, and remember, in Genesis 17, that's where he received the sign of the covenant. And since that point, his portrayal has been increasingly more positive. I mean, especially last week, when we looked at, at a large swath of, of, of chapters, we looked at chapters 18 to 19, and there we saw Abraham really step up as a man of faith. And he stepped up to fulfill a very prophetic and priestly role. He, he, was, a, he was truly functioning as that mediator of God's blessing to the nations. There we saw how he showed great compassion in his attempt to bless the city of Sodom, to intercede on behalf of a wicked and pagan city. And if we look to next week, 
and we look into the next couple chapters, we see starting in Genesis 21, things are really on the up and up when, when finally that, that child that God has promised to Abraham and Sarah for the, uh, over the past 25 years, when that child is finally born, Isaac finally arrives. And then, well, of course, in Genesis 22, we come to the most significant moment in Abraham's story where he demonstrates his greatest act of faith when he is willing to give that son back to God. After an inexplicable request from the Lord to sacrifice Isaac on a hilltop, and Abraham, by faith, is willing to do it. So because the two chapters that come before and the two chapters that come after our text, because they present such a positive picture of Abraham as this man of faith. Well, friends, that just makes our text, that just makes Genesis 20 stand out even more as an anomaly. Because here, as you just heard read, in our chapter, we see Abraham surprisingly fall back into an old pattern of sin. It's like deja vu. It's happening all over again. They, they sojourn once again to a foreign country, to a foreign territory. This time, it's not Egypt, it's Philistia. It's among the Philistines. And, and he reverts back to that old ruse of pretending that Sarah is his sister. And once again, she's noticed by a king. Once again, she's added to his harem. And this time, the stakes are even higher. Because this time, Baron Sarah... She's actually fertile, and she's about to conceive a child in the next chapter. And so this time, questions of paternity are at stake. Is Abraham truly the father? Is Isaac truly the promised child, or is he just the bastard child of a Philistine king? That's what's at stake here. And so this morning, I, I hope to show you how Genesis 20 fits into the literary structure of all of these chapters recounting Abraham's story. But more importantly, more importantly, I hope this chapter will really speak to you personally. I, I hope it really encourages those of you who are dealing with your own sin struggles, just like Abraham. Like Abraham, many of us are, are probably further along in our faith journey. So we've been walking with the Lord for, for some time now. And, and, and for, for many of us, we, we do have our share of, of spiritual highs and, and, and spiritual victories. And, and we, can, we can look at all these high points in the rear view mirror. And yet, from time to time, we find ourselves stumbling back into the same old patterns of sins. And we thought we had matured beyond that point beyond that struggle. We, we, we thought we had left that issue in the past, but, but we find ourselves somehow stuck in the same cycle. We're still dealing with the same old sins. So friends, if that describes you, if any of that resonates with you, then I hope you come away from this sermon, in this passage, hopeful and inspired. Hopeful, in knowing that it's not just you who, who deals with recurring, besetting sins. You're not alone here. And inspired 
to receive the grace that you're going to need to walk forward now from this point on in faith and obedience, not pulling back, not shirking from serving God, not wallowing in your guilt and shame, but moving forward in faith. I hope you get inspired to do that. And so my goal is to, is to help you do those things but by first of all recognizing some biblical truths that are found here in our text. And so if you want to follow along, look in your bulletin. There's an outline, and I've listed out three biblical truths I'd like us to deeply consider. First, first I want us to consider how we are beset with sin, even as believers. Second, God is sovereign, even over our sin. And third, God remains faithful, even when we are faithless. So those are the three truths That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Let's consider the first truth. The truth is, we are beset with sin, even as believers. Being beset with iniquity, that is, being plagued by temptation, being persistently troubled with sin, yes, we we understand that. That that makes sense if we're describing non-Christians. We get that. We get that the non-believing world is under sin's enslaving power. We understand that in our unsaved, unregenerate state, we are naturally sinners who sin. That makes sense. But the point here, the point being stressed in our passage, is that even believers, even the saved, can be beset and plagued and persistently troubled with many sins. We are not immune to this problem. And Genesis 20 confirms this very, this very truth through a rather embarrassing deja vu moment in Abraham's story. Like we said this time, instead of traveling to Egypt, we're told in verse 1 that Abraham and Sarah sojourn in Philistine territory. They ended up in the royal city of Gerar, where a Philistine king named Abimelech lived in a palace with a large harem of wives and concubines. And we learned that Abraham made certain assumptions when he arrived in this city, certain assumptions about the people of Gerar and their king. He assumed that all of them were godless and they were violent. And if they just knew that Sarah was his wife, they would end up killing him in order to secure Sarah for the king. That's what he assumed. So with that fear a fear for his own life. With that driving him, he resorted to his old tricks, and he told everyone that she was merely his sister. And he was right, in one sense, about Sarah. He he was right that even at the advanced age of 90, don't forget, she somehow maintained enough beauty to draw the attention of the king of Gerar. So Abraham saw that coming. He was right about that. But there's no doubt that his actions in this episode were wrong. They were shameful. They were cowardly. They are to be met with moral disapproval. Now, you would think that after his faith was counted to him as righteousness in Genesis 15, and after he entered into a covenant relationship with God, Genesis 17, you would think that after those things, he would be a completely different man. But here we see post-covenant Abraham behaving eerily similar to pre-covenant Abraham. He's still susceptible 
to the same old sins. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I think many Christians can identify with that, can identify with that struggle. No matter how long you've been walking with the Lord, you can surprise yourself at how susceptible you still are to falling into those same old sins that you struggled with when you were a younger believer. Perhaps it's true that you have, up to this point, matured in patience and restraint, but every so often, you still lose your temper and you fly off the handle. Or perhaps it's true that you've grown in your holiness and in your self-control, but at times, you're still prone to lustful, intrusive thoughts or behaviors. Or perhaps it's true that, that you have become more contented and more trusting of other people, but you know that you're still susceptible to bouts of envy and jealousy towards other people. From time to time, you still fall prey to the same old sins. You know it. You know what you deal with personally. What all believers, what all Christians need to understand is that our sanctification doesn't work like a switch It's not just an on-off kind of thing. The gospel, yeah, the gospel definitely does offer us the hope of freedom from sin's enslaving power. We're not just forgiven, as Pastor Fred prayed earlier, of, of, of sin's penalty, but also of sin's power. We are freed from that. That is true. But friends, please don't fool yourself into thinking that you are going to achieve an absolute victory where your sins just cease to have any hold on you now, when you can just simply move on from those things. It just doesn't work that way. That's not how sanctification happens. And I think Abraham's failure in chapter 20 confirms this. It confirms, really, our own experience of sanctification. Because let's be honest, our spiritual journey can have an overall positive trajectory with some significant high points and seasons of growth, but we all know that at the same time, it can be interspersed and intermingled with low points of disobedience and failure. I mean, how else? How else do you explain the seemingly inconsistent picture that we get of the Corinthian church? You you, you know, we, we had been in 1 Corinthians Uh, earlier this year. We had been walking through that book, and we took a break after Easter to get into this Genesis series. We're going to go back into it later this year. But we saw there, if you recall, the inconsistency of the Corinthians. It was so stark. It was so clear. Because on one hand, we saw how they were being described as, as those sanctified in Christ Jesus. They, they were those who are enriched in all speech and all knowledge. They are not lacking in any gift high points all around. And yet, at the same time, we saw how they are so mired in division and disobedience, dealing with some surprising sin issues. So how can the same church have such highs and lows all at the same time? That's because because that's the normative Christian experience, isn't it? And I believe the Apostle Paul tried to capture this normative experience in Romans chapter 7. I know it's debatable, but I do think there's good reason to believe that Paul in Romans 7 is describing his own post-conversion experience. That is, he's a Christian, 
and yet he experiences these swings between spiritual highs and spiritual lows. He has a new regenerate heart that gives him a desire to do what is right, but his sinful flesh keeps pushing back. So you hear it in his own words in Romans 7. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I have the desire to do what is right, but but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Does that inner turmoil connect with any of you? Does that inner tension resonate with any of you? Do you experience that same thing, that that tension between wanting to do what is good, wanting to do what is right, and yet from time to time you find yourself caught up doing the very thing you hate, falling into that sin you don't want to do? Where the evil you don't want to do is what you keep on doing, as Paul says. Has that been your experience? Well, it should be if you are a believer. Because again, that's the normative Christian experience. And I think Genesis 20 confirms all of that for us. Because like Abraham, we are beset with sin. That means we are persistently troubled with sin, even as believers, even post-conversion, even after entering into a covenant relationship with the Lord. The reality is that as Christians, we all have our own besetting sins that will uniquely tempt us over the course of our lives. Now, because of the grace of God, and because of the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit at work in us, we can be comforted in knowing that the overall trajectory is going to be positive and upward trending because of God's grace. But... There will be moments and seasons marked by downward plummets. Don't be pleased by that. Don't be satisfied with that, but at the same time, don't be surprised with it either. Compare it to the stock market. Now think about you know, checking the little app on your phone, looking at the Dow Jones. I mean, man, if you look at the one-day view of the Dow Jones, it could be quite depressing. Right? That line can, can be red and it can be downward trending. And the same could be said if you just pull back a little bit to the one-week view or the one-month. But if you keep pulling back and you go and you pull back and take the long view, maybe a one-year view, maybe five years, ten-year view, well, then you're going to be comforted to see oh, there's a green line and the overall trajectory is going up. It's positive. Well, friends, I think the same goes for our sanctification. We can be discouraged by our spiritual falls and failures. I mean, we just look back to to yesterday, or you look back to, to last week or last month, and I know it can be depressing, but that's where we need to take the long view. And we need to recognize that God is doing something in our hearts and in our lives that's gonna take many years, maybe even decades, And so you may have recently experienced a spiritual plummet, or maybe right now you're in a season of stagnation, but you have to ask yourself, how has the Lord been growing you 
over the past 10 years, over the past 20? What has he been doing in the long term? Now, perhaps that question actually does raise some alarms for some of you because you haven't seen much growth, even in the long term. Like I said a couple weeks ago, perhaps it turns out that you've only been inhaling the Christian faith secondhand. You don't have a first-hand experience of God and of his saving grace. Well, at least be grateful. Be grateful for that realization. And take this really as a wake-up call. And begin right now to pursue God for yourself. To have a first-hand relationship with him. Make a change starting today. But For those of you who who are believers, those of you who are slowly but progressively being sanctified in Christ, I hope this spiritual plummet that we see of Abraham in Genesis 20, I hope it serves as an encouragement knowing that that happens even to Father Abraham. Even to the man of faith, this is what happens. So you can be comforted in knowing that you're not alone. You're not the only one dealing with this. But of course, the next question is, the next natural question for us to ask is, why would God allow his people to experience these spiritual falls and failures? What is he trying to accomplish here? Well, I hope to shed some light on that. But notice that that question is built on the assumption that God is purposefully allowing us to fall into sin, meaning that he at the same time could have prevented it if he so willed. He could have stopped us from sinning. So we're going to first need to establish the truth of that assumption, which of course leads us to our second truth. The second truth is God is sovereign even over our sins. You see evidence of this in the way that the Lord prevents Abimelech from falling into sin. Look with me in verse 3. The the Lord speaks to the king by means of a dream. Verse 3, he says, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now, Abimelech is totally surprised to hear that. He didn't know Sarah was married. Listen to verses 4 to 5. Now, Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did not he himself say to me, she is my sister, and she herself said, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And we know that he's speaking the truth, that he he truly did not touch her. He did not violate her. He did not violate the sanctity of, of Abraham and Sarah's marriage. He didn't commit adultery. And that was confirmed by God himself. Look at verse 6. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Notice how it's God himself who restrained Abimelech from acting out on his fleshly impulses. I did not let you touch her. So in other words, Sarah came out of this situation with her honor intact, not because Abimelech is such a chivalrous man, not because he's such a gentleman. No, he was trying to add her to his harem of concubines, after all. So there's there's no chivalry in this pagan king. 
No, she came out of this terrible situation unscathed because the Lord God himself intervened to restrain the king from sinning against both God and her. Now think about that. Think about what this means. If God is sovereign enough to restrain an unbelieving pagan king from acting out on his lustful intent, then clearly God could have restrained Abraham from acting out on his sinful deception. Right? I mean, he could have prevented Abraham from falling back into the same old sin. God is clearly sovereign enough to do that, but he didn't do that. And of course, now the question is, why? Why did he allow Abraham to fall back into the same old sin? What, he, what was God trying to accomplish? Well, I, I'd argue that he was trying to teach Abraham a valuable lesson. Now, what could that lesson be? What did God want Abraham to learn from this failure, from this fall back into the same old sin? Well, to answer that, Let's first look at Abimelech's conversation with Abraham where he calls out Abraham for his deception. So look at verse 9 with me. Let me read a, a, a section of it for you. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? And Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. And then he, and then he goes on in verses 12 to 13 to give this really lame excuse about how Sarah, you know, technically is my sister. You know, she's my half-sister. So, you know, I didn't really technically lie to you. I just, you know, wasn't telling you the whole truth. And that's just a lame excuse here. But the point here, the point is that Abraham totally misjudged the people of Gerar and their king. It's ironic that he prejudged them and he assumed that they are a people that lack a fear of God when it actually turns out that he's the one in this story who lacks a proper fear of God. The king and his people actually respond like God fears. In verse 8, it says that when Abimelech shared with his servants what the Lord had told him in the dream, it says the men were very much afraid. They had fear of God. Look, at, look back at verse 9 with me. In verse 9, the king himself, he describes adultery as a great sin. That's his own opinion. Which means if Abraham had just been honest in this situation, Abimelech would have left Sarah alone. He wasn't going to commit a great sin like adultery with Sarah. So if there was anyone in this story demonstrating no fear of God, sadly, it was Abraham. His actions, they were certainly driven by fear, just not a fear of God, not a proper respect or proper reverence for God. No, he was driven by a fear that God wouldn't pull through for him. A fear that he had to take matters into his own hands. He feared that God would not protect him. That's the fear driving Abraham. Had he truly feared God, then he would have trusted God. He would have acted righteously. He would have told the truth. And God would have protected him and his wife during their sojourn in a foreign land. 
That's what would have happened if he truly feared God. So if Abraham has a besetting sin, if he has a particular sin that keeps troubling him over the course of his life, I think that sin was probably disbelief. And that's ironic, again, because he's known in Scripture as the man of faith, but we've already seen on a few occasions when his sinful flesh gets the best of him, he allows his disbelief to drive him towards a sinful self-reliance. He turns to his own ingenuity. He turns to his own cleverness. He turns to his own strength. He leans on his own understand, understanding instead of trusting God. He takes matters into his own hands. But as sad as it is, I think Abraham needed to experience this kind of failure. Because if he was truly going to be one day a blessing to the nations, then he first needed to be more sensitive to God's common grace that's being poured out among the nations. See, let, let's be clear. Abimelech and his people aren't saved. They're, they're, they're not in a covenant relationship with God. But God's common grace is still at work among unbelievers. And they are more receptive to God's word than we give them credit for. So like Abraham, we can be quick to prejudge and quick to, to misjudge unbelievers. So, so one valuable lesson that, that Abraham learned, and, and a lesson that I think all of us need to learn as well, is that God is sovereignly at work in the lives of unbelievers, preparing the soil, priming the pump, so that when you go and bring God's blessing to them, when you bring them God's word, when you bring them God's gospel, they are more ready at that point to listen and to respond with proper fear. God is working in their lives in ways that you probably don't even realize. That's something we need to be more sensitive to. But you know, the more personal lesson, the more personal lesson that Abraham needed to learn was really the importance of staying vigilant to resist your sin. That's what he really needed to learn, especially when it comes to those besetting sins, to those persistent sins that you're more susceptible to. Because it's easy to let your guard down. It's easy to assume that by this point in your spiritual journey, you've matured enough. And look, it is true that, that you're, you're not the same person that you were when you were a non-Christian or, or when you were a younger believer. By God's grace, you are further along in your Christian growth and sanctification. Praise God for that. But you have never and you will never mature past your need for God's preserving grace. You are just as needy for his grace to keep you from sinning as you once were when you were a younger Christian. Your response to his grace has probably changed. Your response to his grace has improved over the years, but your need of that grace remains the same. Maybe that's the lesson that you're supposed to learn in these recent falls and failures that God has permitted you to experience in your life. And I hope that as you see what's happening in Abraham's life and his story, it gives you encouragement. It gives you hope and inspiration. God is purposeful in everything he does. 
So if he sovereignly has allowed you to fall, I, I, I hope you understand that he has good reason. And it really comes down to learning the, the amazing extent of his goodness and grace in your life. I think that's what he, hope, he wants you to come away with, experiencing his amazing goodness and grace. And so here's the third truth in our text. It's that God remains faithful to us even when we are faithless towards him. He's still good. He's still gracious. We can fail him time after time, but that ultimately does not change God's posture towards his elect. If he chose you, if he called you to himself, not, not because of your works and your righteousness, but because of his goodness and his sovereign grace, then you have to realize that your spiritual falls and failures are not going to be deal breakers. They were not the reason why he called you into relationship with him in the first place. So just look at our story. Look at verse 7. In the course of assuring Abimelech that he's innocent and that really it's Abraham at fault, notice in verse 7 how God still calls Abraham a prophet. And he still tasks him with the responsibility to intercede on behalf of the king and his household. Verse 7, Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So apparently, Abraham's privilege to serve God as a prophet is not conditioned on him having unswerving faith and stellar behavior. It's clearly conditioned on God's grace and his effectual call. And that should be really a strong encouragement for every single one of us. Because if you can be as faithless as Abraham was and still be used by God to accomplish his kingdom purposes, then why do we fear that we have fallen beyond the reach of God's grace? Why would we assume that we have sinned ourselves beyond any usefulness for God and his kingdom? Abraham failed big time. The Bible doesn't gloss over it. It paints an honest picture of all of its biblical heroes, warts and all. And in so doing, giving us that raw, honest picture, Scripture is able to highlight the amazing grace of God, which, of course, was the point all along, to show God's grace as it shines in the midst of the darkness in the lives of these biblical characters. So just first, notice with me, notice in verse 14, how by God's grace, Abimelech responds to to Abraham, not with retribution, but with generous gifts. He gives him all this stuff. He, he, He offers this exorbitant amount of silver to vindicate Sarah and, and her innocence. And all of that is evidence of God's grace. Abraham comes away from this shameful episode even richer than when he began it. That's grace. That's the only way you can explain that. And secondly, notice how by God's grace, Abraham's intercessory prayer is still powerful and effective in spite of his failure. Listen to verse 17 to 18. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So Abraham is at fault here. 
He's the one who almost brought death to Abimelech and his household. And yet by grace, he still gets to be the means by which God brings healing and blessing to this pagan nation. Abraham intercedes and fertility is restored to the king's household. Now once again, there's a touch of irony here in the fact that Abraham is able to effectively pray for the fertility of a pagan king, and yet his own prayers for his own fertility have up to this point gone unanswered. I can't imagine how confusing that must have been for him. But as readers, we know that chapter 20 ends in this particular way because it's preparing us for how God is going to finally answer his prayers in chapter 21 in the next chapter with the birth of Isaac. So from a literary point of view, we understand why it ends this way. But the big takeaway for us on a personal level is that the same grace on display in Abraham's life, especially in his failures, is the same grace that God wants to pour out on each of us. That means that sometimes, sometimes in love, God is going to allow you to fail. He's going to let you fall, sometimes spectacularly. And sometimes he will allow our failures to occur in open view of other people, just like in Abraham's case. Because I'm sure the entire city of Gerar learned about his sinful and potentially deadly deception. So yes, it'll be embarrassing, but it will also be redemptive. When God allows us to fail big and to fail publicly, that gives us an opportunity to repent big and to repent publicly. That gives us an opportunity to show everyone the grace of God that's at work in and through us in spite of our falls and failures. That's how we can be redemptive. In those moments, we have a chance to display, once again, the steadfast love of Christ in the gospel. The one who loves us enough to enter into our world of brokenness, to identify with flawed people like us, and to take our place in life and death and resurrection, all to secure God's forgiveness and our redemption. That's what we can display in those moments. So church, I, I, I hope you understand that there will be days ahead where you will fall and you will prove faithless. That's inevitable. But what's also inevitable is the faithfulness of God. He will never leave you nor forsake you. You can take comfort in knowing that his goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this needed reminder of how good and gracious and faithful you are. Lord, not if we fall, but when we fall, we're trusting for you to pick us back up. We're trusting for you to shower us once again with your grace. It is undeserved. We know. We know we don't deserve it. But we thank you 
that that's the kind of God you are, a loving, gracious, forgiving, compassionate God. So empower us to live for you, to live in righteousness, to live in obedience. Help us, Lord, to live out our faith among all those that you put in our lives, especially those who don't know you. We pray all this in Jesus' name.